Welcome to the Lapsus Lima podcast. Please support us by signing up for member-exclusive content at lapsuslima.com. Hello, I'm David Getson. Why do we study the history of architecture? A number of answers come readily to mind. It may improve our understanding of the current surroundings. It could improve on what we build. The interest in exploring one of the past's most enduring and immediately perceptible impacts on the present is another. To weaponize art as a tool to combat fascist oppression in the struggle for peace and economic justice and to guarantee that those corporatist bastards will never pervert it again is perhaps not what comes most instantly to mind. Yet, that is exactly where we are headed. Last week, we wrapped up some thoughts on Frank Lloyd Wright's anticipation of what industrial reproduction would mean for the fine and applied arts at the dawn of the 20th century. Today, we begin our reading of what may well be Walter Benjamin's most influential and pervasively misunderstood essay, The Work of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction, which looked back on what had already transpired in the machine-art interface up into the mid-1930s. This essay more than any other we have come across, argues with excruciating urgency why thinking about art and architecture is important. It also makes claims for the study of their historical development and public reception. In the case of Walter Benjamin, it is not much of a stretch to say that he studied and criticized the arts as if his life, as if human life itself, depended on it. Although academic study of this essay has become in recent decades watered down as a sort of latchkey shibboleth, granting casual admission into the cushioned parlor of graduate school discourse, there lies at its core a fiery necessity. Benjamin believed that a historical transformation in the way in which art was produced and perceived had paved a greased track for fascists and the wars they inevitably demanded. The risk was very real. While the rise of fascism that led to Benjamin's own death is an undisputed fact, the question of just how involved art is with political process, and how much control each can exert upon the other, is up for debate. Is art really a matter of life and death? Benjamin confronts the reader with a resounding yes. So on that note, 
We urge you to set aside any institutional preconceptions you may have come with for the discussion of this notorious essay. Although we will lightly touch upon classroom catchphrases such as superstructure versus substructure, dialectics, the apparatus, haptic versus optic, and that favorite of gallery openers, the aura. These are not our main drift. While they are all significant, these concepts are essentially building blocks within Benjamin's thesis. His main argument, however, bears a pointed question. How interlinked are the 20th century's deep historical transformations in both the socio-political and the artistic spheres? Clearly, politics and economics exert a strong, sometimes determinative, pull upon art. But can art tow a cable running the other way? Before we delve into the ideas of a man so historically conscious as Walter Benjamin, some context is due. Although his later life was as bleak as could be, it remains captivating. Hearing it stands as disheartening but compelling proof to a notable statement from the essay in question. Self-alienation has reached such a degree that humanity can experience its own destruction as an aesthetic pleasure of the first order. Benjamin was a German author and intellectual who is frequently aligned with the practice of Kulturkritik, that is to say, of cultural criticism. While not an official school of philosophy or any such thing, the label is applied almost as a verb to thinkers who have attempted to place the culture and society around them beneath the precision lens of critical analysis. This yoking of the everyday to the philosophical would have been for Benjamin a positive and consciously born legacy of his Jewish heritage. He was born in 1892 in Berlin to a solidly assimilated family. Being Ashkenazic, they had been in many ways German for centuries longer than other fellow citizens such as Silesians or East Prussians. His father had launched a banking career in Paris but then relocated to Berlin, where he became an antiquities trader. Immediately in the family background then, the juxtaposition of capital and culture was very present. It was not until the young man studied philosophy at Berlin's Humboldt University in 1912 that he encountered the rising Zionist movement and then seriously thought about his own relationship to Jewish culture. 
although he remained distant from nationalist and political Zionism, he saw Jews as an elite in the ranks of the spiritually active. Zionism would have been a step away from what he valued. In his view, Jewish traditions had always been a guiding light to Western culture. Despite repeated invitations to emigrate to Palestine during the 1920s, Benjamin stayed in Europe. If not even the Great War had disrupted his scholarship, what would? He had enjoyed the combination of university deferments and feigning of illnesses to avoid service during World War I, which time was used for translating the works of Charles Baudelaire. After completing his doctorate, he moved to Frankfurt in search of academic work, applying to university positions, and the newly founded and privately funded Institute for Social Research, a think tank that would later become famous as the Frankfurt School. Although his works, chiefly his postdoctoral dissertation on the development of Trauerspiel, the popular German operatic tragedy, were systematically met with academic rejection, he eked out a career by publishing his own works and translating those of others. In the winter of 1932, it was chance timing that presented Benjamin with his opportunity to escape the rising tide of fascism. While he had been spending several months on the resort island of Ibiza, turmoil within the German government escalated. Lingering in the Mediterranean while he anticipated what was to come, the February 1933 Arson of the Reichstag, Germany's parliament building, prompted his move to Paris and contemplations of suicide. It was during these next years, as he was dreading the political situation and chronically running low on funds, that he wrote several different versions of the essay Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction. The Frankfurt School, which had previously rebuffed him, now periodically sent him money from their own exile in New York, and in 1936 helped him by publishing an early version of the essay in a French translation within the Institute's newsletter. His relationship with the Institute would continue to be fraught. Theodore Adorno, earlier an ardent admirer of Benjamin, informed him in a scathing critique sent from the relative comfort of New York that the Institute would not publish The Paris of the Second Empire in Baudelaire, part of a larger work that Benjamin had been shaping for some time. Editors of his selected writings, Island and Jennings, note that Benjamin's near-total isolation made him morbidly sensitive to the reception of his work. 
though his depression and physical health would continue to get worse. Certain friends, such as Bertolt Brecht and Hannah Arendt, stayed close. He uprooted his library and visited Brecht in Denmark, with an eye to spend his exile there, but several factors, including Benjamin's deepening disagreements about the Soviet Union, distanced him from Brecht ideologically, though not personally. Appropriately enough, Benjamin wrote that lack of arguments made him worry about Brecht's condition. The journey back to Paris, personal library in tow, was effected. A significant correspondence and manuscript archive lay stranded at an old apartment in Berlin. He would make arrangements to secure these documents, but they have never been recovered. Benjamin continued to write some of his best works in precarious situations, as it became clear that he needed to leave France, requiring money and papers to do so. On February 14th of 1939, the Gestapo revoked his German citizenship following their discovery of the publication of one of his letters from exile in the Moscow journal Das Wort. As a stateless individual, the French government sent Benjamin to a prison camp for nearly three months. With dreadful timing, he returned, much weakened, to Paris in January of 1940. He did his best to keep his humor up amongst the stresses of war and depression, continuing to read and think about Kafka as he had always done. Writing to his old friend Gershom Scholem, who was in Palestine, Benjamin observed that Kafka was a man destined to encounter people everywhere who made a career of humor, namely clowns. In a bleaker moment, he wrote to actress and writer Margarete Steffin that the acerbic social satirist Karl Kraus really did die too soon. Listen, in Vienna, the gas company has ceased delivering gas to Jews. Gas consumption by the Jewish population was causing the company to lose money, since it was precisely the largest consumers who failed to pay their bills. The Jews used the gas, in preference to other methods, for committing suicide. As Blitzkrieg swept across northern Europe, Benjamin entrusted his books and papers to safekeeping with a number of friends. The most important documents, the Arcades Project, the manuscript of Berlin Childhood around 1900, and the very text we are about to discuss, the third version of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction, were entrusted to Georges Bataille, best known for his destabilizing attempts at fusing spiritual 
and materialist analysis. He sent most of Benjamin's materials to trusted librarians at the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris, where they survived the war. When peace arrived, Pierre Missac found the materials and sent them along to Theodore Adorno. However, those fleeing to exile along with Benjamin noted that, as he traveled, he refused to let anyone help him with a large black document case. He claimed that it contained a manuscript that is more important than I am. No one knew what its contents were, and this manuscript did not survive. By June 13, 1940, Benjamin, together with his sister, left Paris, fleeing the oncoming invasion and escaped to Lourdes. One day later, German forces entered Paris with standing orders to, among other things, arrest Walter Benjamin at his apartment. By August, friends at the Frankfurt School had arranged a U.S. travel visa for him. It ended up being too little too late, though at the time, escape was still possible. To reach the safety of New York, he needed to depart from neutral Portugal. Vichy France and Franco's fascist Spain were the geopolitical barriers in his path. He managed to safely cross the Pyrenees and reached the coast of Catalonia to discover that Franco's government had cancelled all French travel visas. Madrid had decreed that anyone who carried such papers be returned to France. Benjamin, now a countryless persona non grata, expected to be sent to Gestapo authorities. His brother was in a concentration camp, and Benjamin decided he would rather die on his own terms than see what the Nazis had in store for him. He overdosed on morphine tablets on September 25th, 1940, at the age of 48. However, the pall that had seemed to him so logical and inevitable was by some chance blessing of Catalonian insubordination lifted. The other exiles that had been traveling with him were allowed the necessary passage to Lisbon the day after he died. To classify, in Benjamin's phrase, the aesthetic pleasure of this sad story, it reads more like a Russian joke than a Greek tragedy. But a good Russian joke is more profound than a bad tragedy. Regardless of what ran through the last moments in his own head, 
as the louder echo of the First World War came down upon Europe, Benjamin would have been aware of dramatic deaths of philosophers in the past, and also a well-known saying from Karl Marx's reflection on Hegel, History repeats itself twice, the first time as tragedy, the second as farce. It is by approaching Marx with a revisionary posture that Benjamin opens art in the age of mechanical reproduction. As a note of reference, multiple versions of the essay are available. For those interested, the second edition contains a more detailed view of the culture industry, including Chaplin, Mickey Mouse, and the dynamics of film apparatus as a system of cultural power. For our purposes, we are using the third edition, which somewhat trims the weeds of those discussions. The essay begins with the words, When Marx undertook his critique of the capitalistic mode of production, this mode was in its infancy. Marx directed his efforts in such a way as to give them prognostic value. As a statement of Giddens, this is a fairly standard critical treatment of Marx. In Das Kapital and other works, the relatively new system of industrialized capitalism was examined in an attempt to expose its shortcomings and look ahead to forecast how the system would ultimately turn against itself. By opening in this way, Benjamin chalks out a circle around his quarry. He presents Marx looking forward from the beginning of industrial capitalism, while he looks backwards as an analytic historian. Capitalism snared in the fin de siècle between them. Benjamin himself had already seen several catastrophes along the magnitude that Marx had predicted in the First World War, the Bolshevik Revolution, and the Great Depression. Benjamin is not trying to predict the future, but he looks at prevailing trends and forces within history to understand how we could best arm ourselves against the further catastrophes of capitalism. Aligning with Marx, his hope was that as capitalism would exploit the proletariat with increasing intensity, these same circumstances would make it possible to abolish capitalism itself. The reason that he is focusing on his historical examination of industrial development is that the seventy or so years that had transpired allowed him to enact a cultural vivisection that had not been available to Marx. The transformation of the superstructure, which takes place 
far more slowly than that of the substructure, has taken more than half a century to manifest in all areas of culture the change in the conditions of production. Only today can it be indicated what form this has taken. Substructure and superstructure are within Marxist criticism terms as common as supply and demand are to capitalist economics. While the discussions can get quite involved, the concept is very simple. Substructure is associated with the early links of the production chain, while superstructure denotes those connecting to its consumptive end. Economic substructure, or base, is what a society begins with when the baking soda of material combines with the vinegar of labor, fizzing with value. And in very simple societies, such as hunter-gatherers or those with agricultural barter, that initial burst is all you get. There isn't much abstraction between production and consumption. Highly complex economies, on the other hand, involve a lot of multi-level creaming and processing of this first reaction's surplus energy and output. What is referred to as alienated or abstracted production puts a relatively greater distance between the individuals who produce and the consumers. Because art, as practiced in a commodity capitalist society, is neither necessary for basic needs, nor is its creation directly accessible to any given individual, it is firmly located within the economic superstructure. Benjamin situates Marx's attempted prospective prognosis of economy opposite his own attempt at a retrospective diagnosis of art. If, as Benjamin states, the superstructure containing art transforms more slowly than the substructure containing industry, a historical rear view befits an instrumentalization of culture. This is in marked contrast to what had been the recent trends in Soviet and earlier avant-garde's, proclaiming an end to tradition and history, looking chiefly forward. Benjamin's counter-argument was to seek tools in the recent past. He comments that arguments about proletarian art in the wake of a revolution are less his concern than developmental tendencies of art under present conditions of production. Within that clause, 
one can see the rhetorical springs that Benjamin is loading. It was obvious that revolutionary changes had occurred within the means of production as well as in the governments relating to them. Radical changes had also occurred in the arts. But how deeply did this correlation penetrate into causation? And who could control what? While it may not be the case that superstructure transforms more slowly than substructure, Benjamin was nonetheless observing an actual process. Nietzsche had already stated the concept more clearly as a delay between two realms, a delay even Duchamp would note years later. We would analogize it to the time a pendulum must take to swing before impacting its neighbors on a Newton's cradle. The left and right sides rely upon each other for supply and resupply of kinetic energy. If one side is called thesis and the other antithesis, the strike of impact is synthesis. There, in a nutshell, is the much-belabored concept of dialectics. To illustrate further, imagine an artificially four-dimensional animation of the cradle where, instead of sitting on a desk, it moves forward in time as it swings. The swooping figure-eight trails left by the paths of the pendulums are a good approximation of how a dialectical perspective on history imagines the cause, effect, and consequential dynamics of social progress. Hegel had argued for spiritual dialectics within history, progressing like the Newton's cradle to an omega point of perfect unity or stillness. Marx had followed and inverted Hegel's idea, observing the historical leadership not of spirit, but of material dialectics. The Marxist theory of necessary, desirable, and inevitable revolution is based upon extreme capitalism, a wide swing to the right, being followed by a dictatorship of the proletariat, a wide swing to the left. The idea being that this exchange of power is required to step out of the injustice and imbalance of industrial capitalism into the classless society. The reasoning goes, the farther capitalism pushes, the harder it must fall. Ruling all of this is time and history. Neither the physical nor the spiritual realm is exempt from the requirement of cyclical delay 
when dealing with dialectical transformation. And often, it is envisioned that the most forceful impacts are the ones that take the longest time to swing into place. Nietzsche's allegorical figure of Zarathustra, as well as that of the madman, spoke of the impact of metaphysical transformation reaching the lives of backworldsmen or townspeople long after the catalyzing events themselves occurred, like the light of supernovas long since dead. Nietzsche was speaking of a spiritual event reaching the material lives of average by which he meant really average people, only after a significant delay. The related and prevailing notion at the turn of the century, in fact, the founding principle of the avant-garde, was that culture, and high culture especially, was what struck these early sparks of change, and that art, moved more quickly than the boring old facts of everyday material life. The artists had facility of imagination, and therefore were destined to jump out ahead of and lead, or escape from, the rest of society. But much as Marx had flipped Hegel's phenomenology of spirit over into dialectical materialism, Benjamin was turning that Nietzschean and avant-gardist posture on its head. He argued that social transformation was being driven by material revolution at the level of the substructure, that is, of the most basic means of production. Far from being out in front and ahead of society, art, much like government, had been displaced by these transformations and was convulsing like a fish out of water, attempting to contort itself into something with lungs. Benjamin anticipated that this new creature of art adapted to industry would be the art of the proletariat, of a classless society, and argued that the action of such art would be no less noticeable in the superstructure than in the economy. It would therefore be wrong to underestimate the value of such theses as a weapon. This is the furthest thing indeed from art for art's sake. The newly transformed art was meant to serve as a rear guard against capitalism for advancing the onset of a classless society. Very importantly for the middle 1930s, Benjamin claimed that this new weapon of the people brushed aside 
a number of outmoded concepts, such as creativity and genius, eternal value and mystery. But aren't these the very fountainheads of innovation? In his view, they are concepts whose uncontrolled and at present almost uncontrollable application would lead to a processing of data in the fascist sense. What was once beautiful and brilliant had appeared in this time of emergency as extreme liability. He then stated his following arguments while being useless for fascism would be, in contrast, instrumental to the formulation of revolutionary demands for political art. Fascism was seen by many as a fulfillment, a special end phase of capitalism. Mussolini called it the corporate state. In Benjamin's opinion, industrial capitalism and the attendant modes of production which had brought it about were working up to such dense pressure that nothing could escape this black hole, not even the light of genius. And indeed, what had been strident modes of resistance in the past were swallowed up by the fascist machine. The singular accomplishments of Luther, Bach, and Nietzsche, among others, had been perversely twisted to the use of the National Socialists. Visual art had been co-opted, and it didn't matter whose side you were on. Approved paintings were promoted by Hitler and Goebbels. Painting that flouted their standards and or cut against the grain were collected into the Entartete Kunst exhibition of so-called decadent art, called out for its alleged Negro or Jewish influences. Completely beside the question of whether Benjamin was tilting at windmills or not, by weaponizing mechanically reproducible art against the new state was the question of the integrity of art itself. He was going to use the analysis of art to cast every last bit of ammunition he had against these regimes, and even if no damage was registered, as in fact none was, Benjamin hoped that with this scorched-earth policy of sweeping aside the outmoded concepts, the bullets of new art in the age of mechanical reproduction could not be plucked from dead bodies and breech-loaded into fascist propaganda. If he couldn't win against them, he wanted to at least convey a kind of art that could project a force field of uselessness to its enemies. An art that the Nazis could not use to dominate 
and to destroy. This is the platform of ideological action that Benjamin predicates his essay upon, and all that follows must be held against this light. Join us as we don our helmets and dive deeper beside Benjamin's upside-down Nietzsche and backwards masked Marx to discover how art and we ourselves have transformed in the age of machines. Next, on Lapsus Lima. <laughs>